saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. Today in our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. From social media to politics to churches, it seems like everyone is divided into camps these days. You're either one of us or you're the enemy. There's no room for in-between. There's no room for groups, friendships, nuance, even in family, if you don't agree on every issue in every possible way. Seeing things differently on any level is seen not only as a problem, but as a complete betrayal. And some issues are dividing lines, and they have to be, because God has laid it out within his word. We cannot compromise the truth of who he is and what he has said in his word, nor do we want to. But not everything that we face in our society today is a top-tier issue. Some things are second or third tier. Some things that we have been programmed to believe can't go together because of our political or cultural affiliations, but Jesus tells us that they actually do go together. To give you an idea, we are to care about justice in our world today, and we are to help the poor and to be pro-family and to help and love the immigrant and all of those things. People, they get their one side or the other, and that's not the case at all. Today, I'm continuing my conversation with Matthew Bennett, former missionary and now professor of mission and theology at Cedarville University. Last time, we started a conversation about his book, Hope for American Evangelicals. It's, it's not a long book. It's only about 200 pages, but it's really insightful at how we need to rethink the way we consider the church and its missionary identity using the metaphor of a house that is in desperate need of renovation. Here's why. In the book, Dechurching, it's been laid out for us. We have the stats now for us. Because 41 million people have left church over the past 25 years. Now, there are a variety of reasons why that's such a staggering number. In fact, that is 16% of the adult population of the United States. And there are legitimate reasons why people should leave. Because they couldn't take the biblical stand on issues of sexual immorality. However... In their research, they found that most of the reasons why people have left is simply because the church has moored away from its identity and its mission, and they don't recognize it. They don't find a, a home there. They don't find themselves being loved or received. And it has, in many respects, moored away from the mission of God and turned into a business and performance rather than a prophetic and embodied witness. It's also why pastors are burning out because they're doing something that God didn't intend for them to do. Now, I'm not saying that ministry is not hard. Ministry is hard, and it's going to give a measure of, of tiredness and weariness. But according to Barna, they asked pastors a series of questions in 2015 and then again in 2022, and the results are startling. Let me lay out some of these stats for you. In 2015, 72% of pastors said they felt very satisfied with their jobs. In 2022, 52%. So that's a drop of 20% in seven years. That's really unheard of, statistically speaking. Spiritual well-being of pastors dropped from 27% to 14%. 27% is already pretty low. I mean, that's really low. These are the leaders of the churches. They need help. You who are out there that listen to this show, and I know we have a lot of different pastors and scholars and, and leaders in the church and in a variety of different capacities that listen. But when we look at these stats, if they are to be believed, and I think they are, that 41 million, I mean, really gets you, you see that there is a massive problem that, it's, that best practices is not going to solve. There is a cancer, a rot 
in the church. And, and honestly, I think we, we have been coming together to trying to figure out how to cut that rod out and help the church move forward in a healthy manner. But let me give you a few more stats if you're not convinced yet. Physical well-being dropped from 27% to 9% among pastors. That's pretty, pretty bad, too. Mental and emotional health plummeted from 39% to 11%. So only 11%. That means 89% of pastors say that they are not mentally and emotionally healthy. The overall quality of life that pastors feel has dipped from 42%, which was almost half, which again, still low, to 18% in 2022. The level of respect they felt from the community tanked from 22% to 10%. And the level of true friends dropped by 50% from 34% to 17%. An astonishing 40% of pastors now show a high risk of burnout compared to just 11% in 2015. That's an almost 400% increase. This is a crisis. This is a crisis. And I think what's bothered me so much is that I've talked to so many people and everyone knows what's wrong. I mean, that there's something wrong. And I've seen a lot of different well-meaning pastors and leaders like, we need to pray more. We need to evangelize more. But you got to get down and deep into the rot. What has been believed? What are the uncritical truths and messages and methods that have been received that have caused so many people to be dissatisfied? That's what we're dedicated to helping fix. And when we consider that the median age of a pastor in 2024 is going to be 60 years old, I mean, we've got to get our house in order and quickly. Because think about what that means. The median pastoral age or age of a pastor is 60 years old in 2024. That's crazy. That's why we're here to give hope. And actually, there is hope. This is not all doom and gloom. Matthew's work is one of many that we have found over the last few years that we believe God is raising up to help point a way forward in small ways, in different places. That's why we keep bringing you all of these different authors. They offer up a different perspective, a different way forward. That's what all of our ministry and our episodes are about pointing a way forward to Christians, leaders, and churches to effectively communicate the message of Jesus in this post-Christian moment. And we can't do this without you. We're in our end-of-the-year fundraiser and have set a goal of $53,000. We started last week and already have had 3,700 come in with 49,300 left to go. And we can do it. And we know that you can help. We're asking you to sign up to be one of our monthly watering partners or give a one-time gift to help equip Christians, leaders, and churches to effectively communicate Jesus in this post-Christian moment. Thank you in advance. Now, let's get to the second part of my conversation with Matthew Bennett. Happy listening. Part of my sanctification is brothers and sisters who are willing to come to me and be like, Matt, we covenanted to display the gospel. And I just have to tell you, brother, like this part of your life, I, I don't see the gospel coming through in there. And I need to have the disposition to receive that at this one-on-one level in order that we better communally can manifest the truth that, uh, that we've been called up into uh, the truth of the story of scripture that God has created a redeemed people and his kingdom is advancing despite all evidence to the contrary. And that's not going to happen with some national policy, but it's going to happen when I'm dealing rightly with the people that I'm rubbing shoulders with day in and day out. And that's not to dissuade us from having an involvement in political broader mechanisms. I mean, certainly we can use whatever 
whatever the Lord affords us um, as a responsibility and opportunity to speak into. But our hope is not in some broad, big box microwave fix, but it's in the slow work of seeing the gospel take root in every area of my life as I seek to help cultivate that in the lives of those that I've covenanted in relationship with. We like to call that here the missio holistic approach, where you are all of life is is lived for the mission of God. You do address a chapter on the, when you talk about the living room that we have, in some respect, divorced theology from our real lives, that it has no greater effect. How have we really gone about divorcing it from real life? And how do we help integrate that back together? Because they really don't actually separate. They're, it's like wet goes with water. They, they go hand in hand. But yeah. how have we separated it? Yeah. Well, I think one of the ways that we have done that is that we have so tribalized in some of the subcultures, subgroups, and um, special interest groups, maybe I can call them, um, within various parts of evangelicalism, where we, uh, we have our own niche points of concern. And they become shibboleths for whether or not you're with us or against us, which, I mean, in some things we do need to divide over points of conviction that maybe we don't hold in common with other people. That's, that's natural. That's appropriate as we seek to live out our convictions in, in community and in local churches. But given the mechanism of uh, social media, not to always be dogging on social media, but this is one way that we have sort of invited the whole world to watch us nitpick one another and destroy one another, devouring one another over, you know, the, the minutia of what should be third tier issues. Uh, and to do so in just a way that displays nothing like the love that we've been called to display as a proof of our gospel change. And so the analogy I used was that our, our living room and growing up was something that had a ton of windows in it and uh, loved the way it brought light in. But as I came back looking at it with new new eyes, looking at it to be sold, I realized, my goodness, everybody walking by on the streets is able to look right into that. And when my sisters and I were watching Walker, Texas Ranger and in the commercials trying out our like karate kicks and, and punches trying to mimic him like the folly of our engagement there was on full display for the world when we thought we were just sort of nestled away in the privacy of our own uh, familial engagements and i think that's a, a metaphor i see for the ways that we have undermined the unity that we espouse by devouring one another publicly and letting the world look in and say i want no part of that mm -hmm. The social media world is one that I think we're also trying to figure out because we know that it's forming us. But it is it is. I don't know if it's disappointing or frustrating to realize how much people are watching us from that angle. I hope it makes us to tweet or it would make us. I don't even know what you use now. We don't call it Twitter anymore. It's X. But does it make us X differently? Yeah. Is that how we say it? I'm, I'm tired of everybody put the parentheses behind it already. Formerly yeah. known as Twitter. Just yeah. whatever it is. You know, yeah. but it's it is a, a difficult thing to realize how much we have divorced it from everyday life. And people are watching us. We are the yeah. as it's been said, the only Bibles that people do really read, especially with our social media feeds. And we get that keyboard courage where we start posting about things yep. that are second and third tier issues yep. causing even greater issues. 
which we see in a variety of different venues and avenues. And one of the other pieces that we've seen is just the glamorization or the idolization of sex. You, again, you move into the bedroom, which is something that a lot of evangelicals, I mean, there is a lot of people that are beginning to address this. They talk about it within marriage, but yet at the same time, we haven't really understood how we've become to idolize it. Now, I know Carl Truman's been on the show and and talking about his book, and you address that book in the in your book because it's such an important work but just for uh, our audience today how have we idolized sex within our culture right now and, and even in the church you you actually address purity culture which i found to be a welcome addition very few people am i am i seeing i've seen people kind of crack down on it of course and villainize it you're much more sympathetic toward it and yet you find a redemptive aspect to it you didn't go so far as to just beat it down and say how evil it was you do a nice kind of a soft rebuke and then you bring it into more of a redemptive idea how have we really idolized sex within evangelicalism and how do we fix that yeah well first i'd tip my hat not only to um truman for his uh, incredible work but also Rachel Joy Welcher, um, mm-hmm. her book on uh, speaking back to purity culture, I found to be exactly what you were saying. So I'm standing on her shoulders in many ways of kind of espousing this uh, upholding of a biblical sexual ethic in contrast to those who would see some of the damage that's been done by the purity culture that basically elevates um, maintaining your virginity and, and equates that with kind of your holistic biblical fidelity. And if you don't make it to the altar, you're doomed to a, you know, terrible uh, sex life and terrible marriage. Yes, all, all those different pieces, yeah. all those entailments that come with it that are kind of cringy. Um, uh, I think she does a very good job of saying we don't put away this biblical ethic. We uphold it. We maintain it with all the integrity of any other biblical command. But we also need to pause and say, what is it that's pushed us to so elevate this particular thing? And what are some of the things that maybe we have? Uh, the, the language I use is uh, smuggled in some of the idolatry or the assumptions of the world while baptizing our ethic with biblical principles. And in many ways, this is just drawing on uh, stuff that's coming out of Noob again, who, when he was living in India for 40 years, saw little temples and enclaves in people's homes in which there were these shrines and physical idols that you could identify. And then he went back to the UK and he said, well, there's not as many shrines, but my my idol antenna are certainly detecting idolatry all over the place here. And so if we then come back to considering how does the church handle some of these uh, issues of sexuality and sex, and are there idols that we've sort of smuggled into the sanctuary? I think one of them is one that we have bought the world's expectation that sex and sexual fulfillment equate to total fulfillment. Um, And while we've bought that line that we will be fulfilled if we, if we have that sexual aspect of our life um, available to us, we've just kind of pushed the ethic to saying that you can't have appropriate sex apart from, you know, from being married, but we didn't, go the whole way to kill the the idolatrous whisper that that if you have maintained a, a pure sexual life until you say I do, 
now you can be fulfilled in the same ways that the world says you uh, you can expect to be. So we've bought the the true heart of the idolatry that sex is ultimate. We've just baptized it with a biblical ethic and kind of put a hedge of protection around it. And I, I mean, I illustrated this just personally of reflecting back and um, realizing that as a as a teenager, I I prayed those prayers of like God, I send Jesus back, like come Lord Jesus. But if you could wait until I get married, that'd be great. <laughs> and I in, laughed because a, I did the same thing. <laughs> well, but it hits hard when you peel back the layers and you say, look, I was so bought into the idea that the consummation of my marriage would be fulfilling that I wanted God to put off the consummation of the ages. Yeah. Like that, that sucks. (laughs) 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 I love it when we get real with theology and bring it into real life. (laughs) Yeah. It is so, but doesn't that peel back how much we, we have so elevated Yes. Sex to say that the presence of God restoring creation might not be everything that it needs to be if I haven't been able to engage in sex. Goodness. It's just, it is so crazy. And you've you've talked about this idea of idolatry, which we talk about a lot on the show. Mm-hmm. We talk about the cultural idolatries that are implicit within the Western culture. Western culture, we have said, is a wonderful thing. I mean, we get freedom, equality, education, technology. Vishal Mangalwadi's written about it in the book, The Major World. Glenn Scrivener, um, Scrivener's written about it in The Air We Breathe. Dan Strange has talked mm-hmm. a little bit about it. And we've even seen Tom Holland in his Dominion. I mean, all mm-hmm. of these books have helped us form how wonderful our Western culture is. But within that are idolatries that come. And Mike Goheen has drawn out that really the goal of the Western cultural story is material prosperity. And there are these, with the freedoms that we have, we've gone into these different avenues trying to find meaning and purpose and all these different pieces that are there. But it is funny to me, as we talk about these idolatries being in the world, we fail to see how much they've crept into the church, as you've already alluded to. And I've seen it in other avenues where we talk about, let's talk about autonomy, for example, radical autonomy, where it's my body, I can do whatever I want to do. You can't tell me what to do. That's on one side of it. It's That's autonomy. But I remember talking to Nick Ripkin. And Nick Ripkin was talking about how there were so many people that he knew that men who came to him and said, I would be a missionary, but I can't take my guns. And because of that, it seems so humorous, especially when I was in the Midwest. But now I'm here in the South. That is a very real thing. And I I didn't realize how much it was part and parcel or warp and woof of the culture that I'm in right now. But there is that same idea. The thing is, it's the same idea of autonomy. Either way, you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do. They're just different sides of the same coin taken to its conclusion. And as you've already alluded to, we have this rampant sexual idolatry. You can sleep with whoever you want to be, you can, you know, whatever you want to do, sleep with whatever you want to do, whoever you want to sleep with. But then there's this, I, you still take the sexual part of it. And it's, if you have sex at all ever, then your whole married life is going to be ruined and you're going to live with this guilt and shame. And it's the same concept. It's just two radical sides of it that I think we fail to see um, because it it really doesn't come. As you said, we've baptized it. We have we have masked it in godly language, but it's really an incipient form of legalism that is. I mean, it's like it's just so antithetical to the, to the faith itself that it also kills just as much as license does. Legalism does, too. And last I checked, Jesus was much more harsh on the legalists 
than he was on the, the those who have licensed. Not to say that either one's right, right? They're both some right. aspect of wrong. And we need to make sure that we do, and, and you've, you've really said this well, we need to maintain the biblical sexual ethic as well as the different ethics that the scripture does. We're not saying don't follow the scripture, just don't build that yeah. hedge around it. Because when you yeah. do, it moves away from the gospel itself. You not only have addressed sex, but you move out into the yard. And you use it to juxtapose being missional as a church to that of a what we like to call managerial, attractional, or even, and everyone that I know would, that would use it would definitely disagree here, but an entertainment ecclesiology, who we are, how we operate as a church. How has the contemporary church in America, and I know that, that we're painting with broad strokes here, and there are definite groups that are out there that are faithful, Bible-believing, they're doing what God has called them to do, but... We've seen a movement away from this missionary identity and a missionary ecclesiology. How has the church moved away from that? And what does that, what does that yeah. look like so we can help our people see? Yeah, man. Again, there's, there's layers we could go after here, but I think some of it goes back to the, the promise that bigger is better and that if we can be efficient in our programming and if we can... Um, multiply different events that will occupy people's space with good things, then that will suffice to drive us forward as a church. And I was just, I mean, just before we came on here, I was sitting with a, uh, a church planter out in Salt Lake City, Utah. And one of the things that he said, he said, two things are necessary for becoming a network of churches who actually are cooperatively on mission. One, you need to have a clear understanding of what making a mature disciple looks like, and then to map your, your ministries off of that. And two, you need to have a leadership development pipeline so that you can hive large chunks of your church off and send them on mission with leadership in place. And beyond that, all the programs, all the things that we tend to do that, you know, are the next best thing, if they aren't directed towards maturing disciples in community, raising up leaders, and then multiplying by casting, casting vision throughout for saying, look, we're going to raise you up and you may not serve in this church. You may serve another church and we're going to hurt by losing you up, by losing you from our midst, but the kingdom is going to gain as it grows. That should summarize some of our philosophy of ministry, just those two things. But I think sometimes we have seen efficiency as kind of the reigning paradigm for how to do church. And we start realizing, Hey, if I can be a really good orator, if I can, you know, kind of get the market on what this slice of people uh, needs to hear and wants to hear, and, and it could be really good motivations. I can see a congregation grow. And if it grows to a capacity that maybe our, our current space can't accommodate, rather than thinking about multiplying and, and targeting a place where there isn't a gospel community, uh, we can just do another service and look at that. Now we've got twice the people that we can get in to hear this message. And, you know, well, we've got a lot of people and how do you get to actually know them? And does, does the pastoral staff know them? Well, the pastoral staff can oversee a program for adults and a program for youth. And, you know, they'll oversee the program. They won't necessarily know who's in it or where they're, struggles are, but we'll be able to track them on our 
membership software to see which ones of the programs they've participated in. And by the end, once they've checked all the boxes, hopefully they have been discipled to maturity. And increasingly, as we grow in size, because of how efficient that is, you don't need to buy another building. You don't need to pay another pastoral staff. You get the increased size and impact of uh, gathering in a single space. And there's some notoriety that goes along with that. And you start to think, hey, as I build this mini kingdom here, as I build this platform, the bigger it gets, the louder voice I have to proclaim the gospel. So growing my kingdom is actually a way to growing God's kingdom. And slowly these sorts of thoughts of from efficiency to branding to platforming, it, it seeps into our ethos and the people that we see as models are those who have successfully accomplished the, the platform. They have a voice that goes out from you know, Washington State to Washington, D.C., and there's a, a sense of, man, they must be having an impact because I know their name. But the question that we're going to be asked as elders and pastors is, did you know the names of those who were entrusted to your care? Mm. Hebrews gives a really weighty charge to those who are going to give oversight to a church who are going to one day give an account for those souls under their care. In our efforts to become more efficient, to have a bigger impact or to build a brand that has some numerical success, have we walked away from the life on life knowing of another disciple and moving them towards maturity and seeking what they can help us in as we move in maturity? Are we getting divorced from the raising up of disciples by bringing them to make a hospital visit as opposed to putting them in a, a program where they're going to kind of get into a niche, a very specific and specialized ministry at the consequence of maybe not being exposed to what does it look like to counsel somebody who's grieving because they just lost a loved one. Um, I think we've, we've started to curate something that looks really good from the outside and has apparent impact because of the numbers and we've lost sight of what does it mean to have an impact in the lives of disciples who need to look more like Christ. Which is what we saw with the reveal study from 2007 with Willow Creek, where they came back and said, hey, we we, we have all these crowds. We've done all these programs. We've done all these many things. But we really haven't formed people because that at the end of the day, it became more about the the numerical side. Not that they didn't emphasize the transformative but we've seen that's that's what falls on the stat sheet. That's where the measurables are because they are measurables. And it's hard to measure holiness, surrender, righteousness, forsaking of sin. Those don't fall very well on a stat sheet. And yet that's where I see a lot of the different churches moving toward. That's how they evaluate themselves. And until there is another alternative, it seems like that's where they're going to, to be at their detriment. And we've seen that the quote-unquote megachurches are really not growing Christianity per se. It's, it is a movement from the smaller churches into another. And I'm not saying that they don't have a point. Even Tim Keller said, you know, I can't see these mega churches being going away because they, they can do stuff that the smaller churches can't. In some regards, it's the mom and pop shop on the corner and Walmart moves in, you know, th that mm -hmm. kind of idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, but we're also seeing a rise of the micro church. We're seeing a rise of the house church. There's almost like an 
anti-megachurch mentality that's going on because people are calling for this more missional outlook, this, this idea of being worked out. How do we embrace this? I don't want to say it's a new idea of mission. It's really an ancient idea of mission. It's a biblical idea of mission. I think that we have lost over time. How do we help maintain this biblical notion of mission, biblical call of mission? Because we are missionary by very nature. It's not something we do. It's mm-hmm. something who we are, right? And you address that, having a missionary identity and a missionary ecclesiology. How do we juxtapose that, this idea of existing for the world, when it seems that all of our goods and services in the in the current reigning paradigms as a whole are ministering to the saints itself? And you actually quote some of Newbegin's pretty stark words, where he mentions mm-hmm. that it should be I mean, he, he, I allow you to tell the story there of what Newbegin said when he was asking someone about why the church existed. Do you remember mm, that in yeah. the book? He's having a conversation, I believe it was with some Indian brothers, wasn't it? Um, talking about the uh, the health of their church. And he asked the question, why does your church exist? And the answer that came back was not outward facing. Um, it was more organizational in nature and his stark response was, well, then maybe you don't have a justified reason to exist. If there's not a a kingdom vision, if there's not something that is not only, not only curating disciples, um, in a intellectual and formation sort of way for themselves, but casting them out on mission in order to have an impact in the spaces that this church is going to occupy both in its gathered and scattered sense, uh, then there's, there's not a point. You're a club. That's a very, very loose uh, paraphrase. But well, You also, so I, in page 82, you talk about the difference between being a belief-focused and an action-focused church. And I, I like how you qualified that. I thought that was very interesting because I've seen that. I, I've heard other people, I actually know of one pastor, he got hired at a church and he asked the church to go serve the poor. And they were going on an event on a on a Saturday, and one person out of the entire 150 people showed up. And so the next day when everyone came to church, he put chains on the doors. It's like, I'm closing this church because we're not existing to help other people. We're And, and how do you juxtapose those two? Because we do know that we need to have right theology. We see that there are so many people within, especially within progressive Christianity, you've moved away from biblical Christianity completely. You're denying the, the the truth of who Jesus is. I mean, you're questioning the very scriptures itself. How do we help people to maintain this tension between the two? Because we are to be belief. I mean, we are informed by our beliefs, as Kevin Van Hooser says. It's the this drama of doctrine that we present to the world and this performance script on the stage of the world that we invite people to be a part of and help them to see that belief can be divorced from action. How do we help people to see that? Yeah. Well, again, I I just think that sometimes maybe in any number of the things that we've already talked about, whether it's uh, dividing across racial lines and doing a a church that's a pocket of like or similar people, or whether it's the efficiency driven, um, you know, we have common affinities. So we're going to utilize the homogeneous unit principle to drive towards our base and create a church of like people if we are being brought into a body and if we are a diverse body, then I need somebody and I'm a a teacher. I teach theology. I teach missions here in a classroom. Like I probably skew towards the, the belief side of things. I need somebody in my church who's pulling at my, my shirt being like, we've got to get out there. 
we need to be doing this and the other. And then I need to be speaking into his life to be like, yes, and we need to make sure that's grounded. And we need that tension of, of people who have perhaps a, maybe a, a bias on one side of the belief action line, but who are committed to saying, I know intellectually that even though I'm naturally predisposed to this side, that I need the other side. And so I need a brother who's opposite me in that regard. And we need to link arms and we need to fight it out. And we need to be willing to be uncomfortable, not getting our preference um, in uh, an exclusive fashion, but rather saying, I need somebody to call me out on the things that I'm naturally predisposed to be blinded to. Yeah. yeah as you said before, it's uncomfortable. And, and I think churches do tend to go to one or the other extreme. I know even with Mother Teresa, where she quotes Matthew 25, where I was sick and you visited me. She's like, you know, we're not judged by our belief there. And it's like, well, that's true. Our actions, though, prove the reality of our beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. And so right. that's that constant tension. I mean, even when Jesus gives the example of the Good Samaritan, I mean, of course, his belief was not right and the Jews go crazy, but his action was. And yeah. so we have this constant tension between the two that we're always trying to figure out. And that tension pervades into so many different areas and most notably into the political realm. And you do address politics, which is not an easy subject, especially today. We talk about engagement. We talk about complete withdrawal. I mean, we've, we've have all of these different vying voices where you get the Benedict option, which to remove for a time, you get more of the, the, the Douglas Wilson, the Christian nationalist saying, let's take it over. And then you get those who are saying, oh, you know, let render Caesar what is Caesar's into God what is God's. It has no involvement whatsoever, almost an Anabaptist position where we completely withdraw and we give ourselves over. How do we help then our people to see their responsibility? Because politics isn't going anywhere. Yeah. We are to seek, I would hope, the flourishing of God's kingdom and the opportunity. I mean, government's purpose is to restrain the evil and to enable the good. How do we then, as being involved in a political system, this democratic republic in which we find ourselves, how do we exercise our responsibility maturely and with good stewardship without over-politicizing things to the point that it leads to division when we don't think people hold to the same issues that we do, which are second to third issues of importance that you've referred to? Yeah, Whew. that's loaded. <clears throat> um, I, I think... The first thing, and, and really, honestly, what I'm really trying to accomplish in this chapter is not to give every every caveat um, that you could possibly want to, to know about in this regard, but I want to expose the fact that I think, particularly in the spaces that I find myself inhabiting, I think that there is a set of lenses that we have put on that sit behind our gospel lenses, and those are our political lenses. And I think mm -hmm. that we get a little squeamish if you are if you are inclined towards you know, a, a Republican position or Republican Party on most issues. We get squeamish not knowing what to do when we read Jesus saying you know, that we should care for the downtrodden because that that's a liberal verse. Mm -hmm. But what have we just done there? We've said, oh, th this verse belongs to a liberal category. And I'm uncomfortable with it, which shows that my priority is not my allegiance to scripture and the ethic 
proposed by scripture, but rather I've been given a pre pre-constructed bill of issues and stances on them. And this one that Jesus is espousing seems like it leads to running roughshod against some of those, those party party line items. Well, what we've just seen there is that we've given preference not to reading scripture and allowing the gospel and its and the word to be our lens of primary adjudication, where we would actually say, look, there the endorsement of of life from womb to tomb is an issue that scripture drives us to and immigration reform and the recognition of, you know, the, the human dignity at the border should also be. And instead of seeing tension in scripture at some of those points, we, we should see tension in the fact like, oh, maybe neither Republican nor Democrat are actually the saviors we're looking for. And I think uh, what I'm really just trying to push for is to say, let's be very, very careful to remove those political political lenses that we tend to operate under and just simply uh, read through the lens of scripture and consider the issues as they come to us in, in a biblical perspective. And I think what we're going to find is that neither of these parties is the hope of the church. And I hope we do find that because our hope is uh, an unshakable kingdom. And at the same time, I don't want to be dismissive. As you mentioned, we live in a context where in our governmental system, I do think we have a moral obligation to speak according to our convictions by means of our vote and to do so in ways that reflect our, our Christian, Christian beliefs. So our vote is not inconsequential. It's not unimportant, nor is it something amoral. I think we have a moral obligation to be involved to the degree that we are expected to as citizens of this democratic republic, but our involvement must be divorced from where our ultimate hope is. And I think we get those things confused such that whatever party you skew towards, first of all, it's a false dichotomy that we bought into that there's only two options. So mm -hmm. I'll just throw that out there. But whatever, whatever party we skew towards, if the opposing party wins in any given election, there's going to be voices on either side of the aisle who are wringing their hands saying, like, this is the end. This is apocalyptic. Like, surely this is one of the beasts of Revelation. And we get, we get so hung up on the consequences of this election that we actually display the fact that our hope is probably misplaced. We put too much weight on the outcomes here because we've thought that these are the answers. That is part and parcel of what really is what American evangelicalism has become is dealing with those issues. And it's become so politicized that it's almost impossible to have a conversation on, on issues itself from a really a, a balanced biblical perspective without having one accuse you of compromising the integrity of the gospel on the other, whether it's dealing with refugees which we had a church so full of them, and yet we're holding out the the truth of the word of God and the exclusivity of Christ alone for salvation and his his death on the cross as a satisfying of the wrath of God. I mean, substitutionary atonement. So there is this this idea that I, I I was surprised when I started interacting with people that basically could not put those two together. They thought, oh, if you're for this, you're for that party. And if you do this, you're that party. And I went, the Bible transcends these different political parties that we have today. And it's really hard to keep intention in our very politicized world without feeling villainized by someone else. 
as we we come to the end of our time here today, what is a water bottle that we can really leave for our audience this week that are wrestling with this idea of how do we live this out in the midst of this world? I mean, we gain this missionary perspective and perspective changes how we live, hopefully, in the middle of this world. But how can we help our people hold on to one core truth this week that they can really take home and and sip on so that they might be nourished in their walk with Jesus? Well, I think at the end of the day, my hope is in what Jesus said in Matthew 16, that the church that he is building, not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And the church then strikes me as the, the center of the advance of the kingdom through the people that compose that church and that church taking expression in local churches that see themselves as ambassadors, as signposts of the kingdom, as those who are to gather in worship and for discipleship and scatter on mission. I think as that happens, there is a, there is a refreshing trajectory that doesn't let go of either the things that we are disciplining ourselves towards in biblical fidelity, teaching doctrine, and all the things that we reinforce in our gathering, but also doesn't see it as something separated, a Mm -hmm. dichotomy of belief and action. And so even throughout, as we've been talking, as I conclude the book in the chapter, I kind of tip my hand to saying, look, I've been I've been saying that we're going to look at this particular room through a missionary lens. But I think if Newbigin read my book, he would critique me on that very point, saying it's not that there's a lens of mission that we can choose to opt in on, but the Church of Jesus Christ is implicitly missional. It is part of the triune mission of God to make the name of God and the worship of him known as the water covers the sea. It's what God has called into being in Christ and by the spirit and what he has set as the the signpost of the kingdom that one day he will consummate. And so when I think about church, you want to call it a a water bottle. I kind of cheekily say all the things that we talked about in different types of church, whether it's mega church or uh, belief focused church or uh, micro church or house church. I hate all that language, to be honest. Because every time we add an adjective or uh, some sort of a attribute of this particular church, it's the attribute that gets our attention, not the churchness. Mm. And so I want to call us back to just church. Mm. And maybe that's going to take the forms that it meets in a, in a house. Maybe that's going to be a, you know, quote unquote, mega church. But neither of those are exempt from the the expectations, responsibilities, demands of the church of Jesus Christ to be in and for the place that he has put it, sovereignly trusting the reign of his kingdom to be manifest through the saints who gather and scatter on mission. So let's just be churches and not necessarily any particular brand of church. Hmm. Some good words. Matt, how can people learn more about your ministry and what God's called you to do? How can they become part of something like that? Follow along with you. Anything that I write, I usually put up on Twitter um, or X, whatever. (laughs) It's pretty much the only thing I use it for these days. Um, But my handle there is M a Bennett 8282. 
Um, you can follow me there. You are listening and you are thinking of where to go to college. Man, I'd love to have you come study here at Cedarville University. And if you're thinking about going overseas, uh, I just recently have come on board with Reaching and Teaching International Ministries, and uh, it's a church-centered missions agency through and through that sees the local church as the primary sender, and we simply seek to assist in that process as we see the, the agent and the aim of missions to be the planting of local churches. So um, would love to connect with you through any of those various options. Well, I will put those links in the show notes so that people can follow along and click on those. But I want to thank you for writing the book and thank you for being a guest on Apollo's Water. It was a delight. My pleasure, Travis. Thank you. The church is Jesus's means of bringing about the kingdom of God to our world. It will prevail. That's a hopeful place to be. Even though the stats don't look good, God is still on the throne and he's going to do his work. And I believe that he wants to do his work here, that he's not done with the United States, that he's not done with the church in the West, in North America, or in Europe, and that he's going to create something entirely new. And we want to help build a bridge to whatever that is. We think there is hope. I really do resonate with Matthew's message in Hope for American Evangelicals. I think his metaphor of a house in need of renovation is very appropriate for today. And I really appreciate that over and over he shows us that Too often, we have separated things like the Bible, the gospel, and what it says we ought not to separate. Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to one another. That has implications for every area of our lives. And too often, we have traded in one part of who we are in a desperate attempt to keep another part. But the truth is, when we compromise in this way, we lose sight of our mission. We allow idols to creep in. We allow someone else's mission to become more important than the mission of Jesus. We've wrestled internally with terms like mission and missional, missionary and more, because we know that people either hear a buzzword or relegate it to some place over there that's all about evangelism in a very preconceived way and for some kind of spiritual class that doesn't really relate to where the rest of us live. That couldn't be further from the truth for us. And same with Matthew. Matthew's charge that the church is missional, no matter what its size or shape, where it is, is really important because we exist to proclaim, to live, to be Christ's kingdom in the world he has placed us in. And as he has said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a good word, a hopeful word, and it's who we are. I want to thank our Apollos Watered team for helping us to water your world. That's it for today. And again, don't forget to join our watering team to help us meet our end of the year financial goal. That's it for today's show, everyone. Stay watered, everybody. And